From the Clock Tower of Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. We're C.S. Lewis enthusiasts, not experts. And today we are talking about The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And uh, as always, spoiler, if you haven't read along, please stop, go read, come back. Also, if you don't, that's fine. But that's the recommendation because we're going to jump around and if you've read, you'll maybe be able to follow us. <laughs> and if you haven't, you might not. Yeah. One, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is we've kind of been going through the process of step-by-step in the book. And I think we're going to do that less. We're going to trust that our listeners are reading the book. And so we're not going to try to like hold your hand as we go from one point to the next. So you still don't have to read with us. You can just listen. But we're going to record as if you have been reading. And next week... We're going to finish Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and that's chapters 8 through 16. Love it. I did want to, for our uh, few minutes of housekeeping here, I had a C.S. Lewis quote I wanted to share. Yeah, do it. Um, a children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's story in the slightest. And uh, that stood out to me. I love finding really good children's books to read to my kids. And I'm always shocked at how, first of all, rare it is to find a children's book that I am like, this is good. I, I genuinely enjoyed this. And it doesn't matter how simple it is. It can just be these, these books that have little two or three word phrases on each page. But I've found enjoyment in books like that. And then also, you know, the line, the witch in the wardrobe or what we're reading now. So. Right. I think, I think there's a lot of this idea that for something to be for kids, it needs to be like for kids or childish. But, you know, in this book is, and, and the other Narnian books, the Pevensies are always labeled as the kids who read, read the right books, right? And Eustace in this one didn't read the right books. And the right books help you learn how to tell a story. And so if there isn't a good story, it's not good even for kids. I think that's yeah. kind of another angle to, to see what he's saying is kids can handle sto- good stories. Yeah. Give kids good, valuable things. You'll know if it's valuable, if it's valuable to you too. Yeah, and I because I've been listening to the Narnia books on Audible and sometimes I'm driving my seven-year-old to school, she actually at first was like, I like Harry Potter more, I like whatever more. But now that she she's almost been forced to listen to it, she, she'll she start being like, can we turn on the, the book, Dad? Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so it's been good to see her get caught up. Yeah, the bit. language of humans is in any specific language. It's just story. Yeah. You can see that kids love stories and, and adults love stories if they've kept up on that skill. Yeah. So... In chapters one through seven, Edmund, Lucy, and their cousin Eustace are pulled into Narnia through a painting. They join Caspian and his crew aboard the Dawn Treader as they journey to find the seven lost Narnian lords in the lone islands of the Eastern Sea. On the first island, they find Lord Bairn, and with his help reestablish Narnian rule. On the next island, Eustace is turned into a dragon. And that's where we'll stop with the summary because that's basically the heart of this book is Eustace being a dragon and then not being a dragon right yeah so any themes that you picked up as you were reading these chapters I just noticed um you know we make a couple notes as we're reading and one of them just around greed and self-absorption so when uh Eustace is turned into a dragon the very first line I believe is something about the he had the greedy heart or something about a gre- the greedy heart of a dragon. And that just stood out to me just as far as like, I think when I was reading Eustace through the first five, six chapters, 
greed wasn't the word that came to mind. Self-absorbed or kind of pompous and <laughs> prideful, condescending, whatever. But greed wasn't the word. And so now it made me want to go back and reread it. So I'm curious where you saw greed in how Eustace is portrayed. Using the um, planet Narnia as a guide for themes in yeah. these books, this book is all about the cosmological idea of the sun. Now, the sun isn't the most important of the celestial bodies in medieval cosmology for Which some reason. Which is kind of bizarre. That is kind of weird. <laughs> Jupiter is actually the most important. And that was the one, that's the celestial body associated with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Okay. The sun in this one, however, and C.S. Lewis, I think he's fine thinking, you know, saying, yeah, that's how medieval cosmology is, but I'm going to take the sun more seriously. And so this book is really just saturated with the light of the sun. Huh. And gold is the metal that is associated with the cosmological idea of soul, the sun, you know, S-O-L. These planetary personalities are a lot like personality colors. You have red, which is kind of like an A-type personality, somebody who's confident, somebody who's powerful. But each color has their good side and their bad side. Right. You can be a little too bossy or aggressive, right, with red. And, and there's the virtuous side and the, and the vicious side. The same thing's true with these planetary personality types. You have the sun that gives life and you have the sun that burns it to hmm. dust, you yeah. know, or even you, you, need sun, you need to get sun on your skin to get vitamin D and to feel happy and everything, or you can get sunburned. And it depends on your ability to take that power. A beautiful, heavy power of the sun is only enlivening to somebody who is capable of receiving that power. And so you see the different effects. You can say, well, there's the, the gold, the wealth aspect of this solar spirit. But that turned or, or operated through kind of a vicious heart or a villainous heart becomes greed. And we'll, start to, we'll see that throughout the book, too. You can kind of see Eustace is kind of the embodiment of a lot of those types of vices in adolescent form. He's not a total villain. He's yeah. just obnoxious. Sorry, I have to say this. He's just an ass. That's right. <laughs> not that's a trick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Edmund <laughs> that says, was my favorite line. Yeah, that was a great line. <laughs> but that's true. And you can see in, in, in other books, especially The Abolition of Man, which is more a philosophical book, talks about where the, what this kind of leads to. The type of things that we see in Eustace turns people into what he calls men without chests. Huh. They're, there's, they're all head and no heart, and it kind of takes the humanity out of them. And that's why it's the, that book is called The Abolition of Man. It's getting rid of mankind within humans. And what he, he doesn't mean man as in like male versus female, but just humanity. He means like the, what it means to be, and we'll, we'll do this book, so I don't want, need to get too deep into it. But you can see this is his kind of story playing out of that in the Narnia series. He does that again in That Hideous Strength, which is a science fiction book for adults, but it's that same idea played out through fiction. Hmm. So I, th That Hideous Strength is my favorite of his fiction. So when we get there, I, I'm going to have to put the brakes and try Might not to- a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> try not to talk about it too much because I love it so much, but then this is kind of the Narnian equivalent. And so I get really excited about the personality analysis. Well, we'll we'll have to maybe we'll jump into this after themes, but it's curious when you when you talk about that, it makes me think about when Eustace is described as the type of books that he likes to read. Yeah, like they sound like to any other kid, it would be the most boring books in the world to read, and that those are the ones that he liked. 
And maybe it comes from a feeling of I can be superior to other people because I can know facts and know yeah. things and, you know, head, not heart. Right. Anyway, even the description of his parents, they're very they're very intellectually progressive. And members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, <laughs> no. based on the <laughs> glib description we were given. <laughs> Douglas Grisham, who's, who's, the, uh, who's Lewis's stepson, said when he was actually asked that specific question, that it's not, it's not an allusion to a religious tradition or you know, a certain religious group. It's an allusion to a certain... There were, in the 50s, at least in Great Britain, there was this fad of wearing these like they call them string underwear, but not like, <laughs> not string in the way that they're <laughs> not going like, right like wool almost. It's yeah. almost like there was this health trend of wearing a certain type of fabric on your skin. Interesting. And okay. so you could see that they were just really up with the fads. They were trendy. Uh, okay. And that's, that's what that comment is, at least as far as Douglas Gresham is concerned. It was about them being progressive and trying to know the best things and, and looking to uh, what was hip and modern as a way to prove themselves superior to other, everybody who didn't know the right things. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So that's my take anyway, and the, or that's Douglas Gresham's take. So I don't think Mormons need to get too worked up about that. <laughs> no, is I just they said the special underwear and teetotalers, and I was like, is he making yeah. it a little but, slight jab? <laughs> but also vegetarians, right? Vegetarian, it's it's yeah. the health. It, there's this term called orthorexia, where it's not like anorexia. It's, in the way that anorexia is like this disorder of limiting your food, orthorexia is making sure you eat all the right things. You eat the organic food. You eat the, you know, whatever trend. It's like no meat, all meat, uh, <laughs> all fat, no carb, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like. And it all plays into that same stuff we were talking about yesterday after pickleball. Yeah. It's just optimizing to the last degree. It's right. like, dude, you could, you could like literally eat up every second of the rest of your life trying to optimize for everything. Or you could just go help people and try to be kind of healthy. That's right. You just <laughs> kind of summarize the meaning of this book. <laughs> so this book kicks off, and I love this line. I think we've quoted it. You quoted it to me uh, a couple weeks ago, but uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub, and, and he, he almost <laughs> deserved it. Right. So, but Alex wants to name his son, next son Eustace if possible. Yeah. So maybe we're going to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. I'm not going to take that as like, <laughs> he's not making a moral statement there. His name is Clive, which is like the weird, most British possible name. Clive Staples Lewis. He went by Clive, I guess, until he was four years old. And then he decided, he said, told his parents, he, he pointed to himself and he said, he is Jaxy. And then he went by Jaxie and then Jax and then, and then to his friends, even all through adulthood, he was known by Jack. So his own personal experience, and you can see a lot of this, a lot of this is Lewis just saying what his own personal preferences are, right? So there's, there's moral meaning be behind a lot of the things that he's saying, but a lot of it is, you know, his own personal preference. And I love that about him as we get to know him through reading the books too. But I don't think that he thinks kids with long names, that that's no, a moral no. problem. The parents gave them a wrong name. In fact, I think names are really important so much that I don't really care so much how they, how they sound. Yeah. No, I think, I think for me, it's just C.S. Lewis so many times in different little lines and moments throughout his books, it makes me chuckle. Or it makes me like, it elicits an emotion that I wasn't expecting to feel as I'm going through. And it's just that line's one of them that stands out. Yeah. It makes me chuckle. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and it, it, I'm, pretty, it's, I'm like, oh man, I want to hang out. Yes. Yeah. These books are full of personality. <laughs> yeah. And that's that idea of personality. That's a big theme here, right? That's yeah. this, it's not about just saying the right way to do things about the <laughs> fat foreign kids and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doing exercises in books, right? <laughs> it's, he wants there to be the very human element to everything for things to feel organic 
And yeah. I think adding his own personality does that for me when I'm reading. I do chuckle at some of his little like castaway lines, like in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, don't go into the wardrobe. You know how silly that is, you know, yeah. with a little wink to Maud, what is her name? Maud Barfield or something? Well, well, in this one, you referenced it earlier, but I think three different times it says, well, we know Eustace hadn't read the right books. That's right. <laughs> you know, everything, we know he hadn't read the right books. Right. And and I think he's doing, that's another one of those things. It's his own personality or his own preference. But I actually think he's right. I think on a moral point, he's right. Yeah. That uh, the right books are things that that excite you, that are teaching morality, not through like a bullet point lesson of morality, yeah. but teaching morality through something that's applicable to your life, through something that's real. It's not about somebody who's written the right script and everybody has this like i don't know if modern movies feel like this it's almost like nobody talks like that because everything everybody has like the perfect one-liners yeah. and the perfect setups and it's almost like after you don't say the right thing in a conversation and you and you start thinking about it after oh i should have said this it's like modern movie conversation feels like what the loser who didn't <laughs> say the right thing wishes he had said you know <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> And so you made this comment the other day, but Lucy the Enabler. Uh, now, I, because it's Lucy, I have a special spot in my heart for, for Lucy just because she's always the one who sees Aslan. She's always the one who seems the most in tune. And she's the one who's giving her water to Eustace. And obviously everybody almost immediately when they meet Eustace is totally turned off. Yeah. And, you know, he's a beast and he's a villain and he's just ridiculous. So so when you made the comment about Lucy the Enabler, I totally see that. But I also am always wondering, like, was she the wisest person because she was trying to be good to this beast of a kid who didn't deserve it? Or was she maybe a little naive? Because later on, when it's a dragon and they don't even know it's Eustace. Lucy's like, oh, it's crying. We right. should go run over and open. And I'm like, all right, now you seem a little bit stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little naive, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't think we need to worry about whether she's doing the right thing or not. Yeah, it's an, it, she is kind of enabling to Eustace's awfulness. You know, even Edmund says, like, even being nice to him doesn't help. It's not helping him. When it comes to the way that Aslan interacts with Eustace, he's not just saying patting Eustace and saying, good dragon. Sometimes agreeableness and tenderness can actually work against what's best. But I don't, I think the point here, if there is a point, and maybe there's intentionally not a point, is that that doesn't mean get rid of tenderness and yeah. agreeableness. Yeah. Even when it's not the best course of action, I still think that, you know, it may not be the best course, but it's still good. She's still good even when she's enabling. And that's what's tricky is, especially when you become an adult and you, I don't know, your family relationships become much more complicated, especially like with helping parents, helping children, every phase of life, siblings. Yeah. And you really have to worry, is what I'm doing the best thing for somebody? And I think enabling obviously is not good, but what's worse than enabling is purging yourself of tenderness. And so, I mean, there is probably no right answer sometimes. Yeah. And I think a default to tenderness may not be the best, but it's not bad. Hmm. I long for the days when you could just have good intentions and <laughs> you didn't have to really stop and think, is the outcome <laughs> what I'm actually trying to help? Right. I don't think you can really ignore the outcome, but there's that line that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't believe that. I actually don't think C.S. Lewis believed that. I think that it's false intentions, it's misleading intentions. But I think good intentions 
are what start you on the path to heaven, not to hell. Then, then the good intentions, if they're really good, will require something of you, will require you to do the hard thing. And I think that's an interesting thing about Eustace. Eustace thinks he's so reasonable. He's not mm-hmm. reasonable. He's a rationalizer. And there's a difference there. You know, you have Reepicheep, who's kind of the anti-Eustace, or Eustace, who's the anti-Reepicheep, right? Reepicheep, even in situations where bad things happen to Eustace, or Rince, the, the, the first mate of the Don mm-hmm. Treader, says, like, you know, hopes he get, gets got eaten or something when he goes missing. And Reepicheep says, nothing is, has been less becoming of you to yep. say su- such a dishonorable thing. Even, and he says, it, he, Eustace is not my friend. If something did happen to him, it's our duty to like avenge, avenge him. him. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? All Reepicheep's reasoning brings him to a place of responsibility, not yeah. an escape of responsibility. All of Eustace's reasoning removes him res- from responsibility, right? Even mm-hmm. when Reepicheep challenges him to a duel, he says, I'm a pacifist. And it's like, well, that's yeah. convenient. <laughs> yeah. Once you've swung the mouse around by the tail, now you get to say you're a pacifist because it works in your favor. And so you can see where the head kind of gets in the way of the meaning of your beliefs. Yeah. If you can just always reason yourself around, squiggle around any real principle. Yeah. And, he's, and he does that like, I love when he's, he's doing his journal or diary and he's talking about Lucy sharing his water. And Lucy says, oh, well, girls don't, girls don't need water as much, which is why she's sharing, which obviously just trying to make him feel even better about the fact that he's drinking her water and he's like you know this should be people should write about this this should be important knowledge for people right it worked out for him so he wants it to be true yeah and therefore it's true right what was the thing about saying that people don't need water because perspiration actually cools you down yeah is the people working on the boat shouldn't need as much water because they're perspiring they're cooler than i am right and it's the silliest childish false logic but you could see him going through the, the, pseudo, the process of pseudo-reasoning re- yeah. to work out so that he gets more water. I mean, as far as like themes, there's this, the, the overall sense of the chapters that I, as I was reading, was just like the difference between subjectivity and objectivity and how we approach a situation. Hmm. There's something to the effect of when there's a, or there's no storm, but Eustace says, Eustace is seasick anyway. Yeah. And he says something about, you know, the storm, when's the storm going to let up? And both uh, Drinian, the captain, and Just Caspian laugh. laugh because there's like, there's never been better weather for sailing. You know, this is perfect weather. But Eustace is experiencing a very subjective experience, which is seasickness. And so he projects it outward. He makes what his subjectivity is objective hmm. on everybody else. And that's the problem with trying to pretend that you can be objective. Where do you see this in real life? Well, when myself, when I'm sick or when I'm hungry, right? And then all of a sudden I'm irritable with other people. Being honest about your subjectivity is not because subjectivity is more important than objectivity. Objectivity is the most important thing. It's the only way that we can interact with each other. This idea that you can empathize with somebody and actually experience what somebody else is experiencing isn't true. You're experiencing your experience of somebody. But the reason it's important to be honest about your subjectivity is because objectivity is so important, you don't want to pretend you're actually there before you get there. It's mm-hmm. like running a race. If you, if you feel like you finished the race 
and you haven't finished the race, you're going to look like a fool and you yeah. won't actually ever finish. I mean, just look up YouTube videos. There's plenty of YouTube videos of people who think they finish before they actually finish and then they lose because they let up and somebody passes them. Yeah. I, th I think we do that same thing when we try to say, oh, I'm, I'm just saying things the way they are. I'm just saying them how they yeah. actually are. I'm not getting caught up with a system of virtues or something. And you start dealing with this with people's pseudo philosophies about moral virtue when they say they don't believe in mystical things because they just, they're materialists. And so what they see is what there is. And they're, they're not really being honest with themselves about how subjective every experience is. Eustace thinks he's objective. He thinks what he sees is true. He likes animals only if they're dead and taxidermed, you know, and, and beetles pinned to boards and stuff like that. So because it can just give you the facts straight. It's almost like he doesn't like all of the sentimentality. Oh, he even says when he sees Reepicheep the first time, he says, ew, the horrid thing. It's so, I hate animals. They're so sentimental. <laughs> you know, the sentimental, as if sentimentality is a bad thing because he thinks he's seen the world the way it actually is. But you can't see the world except through your own eyes. And if your own eyes are smudged with self-importance, then when you see somebody ignoring you, you think they're snubbing, you. snubbing you. Yeah. <laughs> you think it feels like everything's about you. Yeah. So his diary entries are so full of this, like totally deluded perspective about what's going on, you know, and to us, it's obvious, but he's not writing to try to fool us. He's trying to fool himself. It's a diary. He's writing to himself. He wants to believe the lie, just like Jada, you know, the white witch wants to believe the lie. She, she comes upon the animals and says, say yeah. that you say something else. Tell me. You <laughs> I'll me. save your life if you lie to me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think I like that Eustace's world or his viewpoint, the overweight European kids doing exercises and those are the books that he likes. Or I like dead See, the foreign kids are probably American kids though. Because yeah. this was written in Ouch. Europe. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> See? Solid burn branch. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, in, I, I like the front, that his viewpoint and perspective, it, like the contrast is sh so stark between, uh, like no one, no one reads about Eustace and is like, wow, I really want to be more like that guy. Mm -hmm. And so because you, uh, Lewis does such a good job portraying him in a way that it's like any reasonable person would want to see more and experience more than the world Eustace sees and experiences. And so it, I think it hopefully would help a reader say, you know, how do I develop these other, how do I develop the heart? Because if this is what the world looks like when you're only using your head, it's pretty bleak and pretty boring and it lacks heart. Yeah. He's a critic without perspective. Yeah. Which means that he's only seeing his own view. He's only accepting what he sees, which means he can't think of anybody but himself. He can't appreciate how kind everybody's being it's awful to live in a world where everybody's snubbing you yeah and yet he does he pre he prefers living in that world to the one where prince caspian's actually being pretty nice to him so is edmund so is lucy definitely is and he still finds ways to be critical of her and so sometimes we like to think oh it, everybody just wants to be happy well i guess that's true but some people would much rather be important than happy and you can see that he wants to be important. And that drive for self-importance, for me, I know when, what that looks like is because of some sense of insecurity. I don't feel important. 
So I'm getting defensive about my lack of importance. And that's when I start to say, no, I really am the center. See how subjective that view is? Yeah. And, and that reminds me of the line from Edmund when Eustace says, do you know Aslan? And Edmund goes, well, he, he knows, knows me. me. <laughs> I loved that. That's, to me, that's, that's the principle right there. Yeah. He's aware. That's the thing. You can't be self-conscious and self-aware at the same time. Yeah. It's like if you, you, you can't see the forest, if you're, if you're focused at the tree, that's you. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the, if you want to stay stuck in a bog of subjectivity, pretend you're objective. You can't be. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's the same idea that I feel about knowledge where it's like, I, I'm really hesitant to say that I know anything really. I mean, this is a so Socratic thing, right? Because as soon as you say you know something, you've, you've said, I finished. Yeah. And the likelihood of you running to the actual finish line, you lose a lot of motivation. So it's for the sake of knowledge that you would say, I don't think I know yet. For the sake of, of objectivity, you say, my perceptions are subjective. My beliefs are always interpreted through my own subjective mind. And that type of humility, that intellectual humil humility is something that Eustace lacks and something that you really see in the more likable characters. Hmm. I love that. All right, we're going to take a break and when we come back, we will get to another few more gems from uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. All right, uh, welcome back. Uh, next up, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Lone Islands. So they, they come upon the Lone Islands and they find, uh, you know, this is part of the Kingdom of Narnia. This is the furthest part, right? Yeah. And everything is, seems like it's kind of run down and poorly run and the soldiers, the castle, all the descriptions. Yeah, during this, all the time that's happened between Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, which was a thousand years, right? At least. The Lone Islands are part of the kingdom, but they're out in the middle of the, of the Eastern Sea, so... They're the they've, apostates. <laughs> they've just been doing their own thing. So the, they, the first island that we come to, as far, since the kids have come into Narnia, they're captured by slave traders, right? Right. And they meet the first Narnian lord. And they weren't exiled. They just, I guess they were sent by Miraz away or Caspian, I'm not sure. But their loyalty is to Caspian the Ninth, who's Prince Caspian's dad. Right. And so they find Lord Baron, who Who've fallen in love. Yeah, and that's right. Stayed on the island. When they were when they were traveling, he decided to have a family. Right. So he actually buys Caspian from the slave trader because he reminds him of Caspian the Ninth and they figure out who everybody is and everything. But it's it's just funny. The the process of liberating, you could say the captives here, that's another character of the cosmological soul, the SOL, um, of the sun is it's a liberating power. Huh. And so the liberating of the slaves here and stop putting an end to the slave trade. And they, they sla trade slaves in for, to Kalorman. And we'll find out more about Kalorman and the horse and his boy. We start to get, I'm not sure if it's other character traits of C.S. Lewis, what he doesn't like, but it's also to that same theme that we've talked about is the humanity in a human and some of the things that get in the way of that obviously trading of slaves means you've you've given up on being a human <laughs> you start treating people like property is like the most 
inhumane thing. I treat them like my own children. I'm worried that's true. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Because if, yeah, if you're a slave trader, you're probably not pretty that good to your kids either. There's, there's this like bureaucratic political feel through the whole interaction with the governor Gumpus and just how everything's become so mechanized in a way that so obviously applies to the political scenario, situation probably of any time, but it's, uh, it's easy to apply to our own yeah. time and to our own country. And the regardless problem. of the person who showed up or what the circumstances, <laughs> sorry, our meetings are at 9 PM on every <laughs> third Saturday or whatever it is. <laughs> and it's like just totally tone deaf. Like, uh, like you said, mechanized. It's just, this is how we operate. And they literally can't even open their eyes to see that the King of Narnia supposedly showed up at your gate. Everything's so bureaucratic yeah you could see that there's that's used as a as an insult as a as a pejorative in this sense c.s lewis did not think highly of that type of formality anything that takes you out of an organic experience with somebody it kind of goes against and this is there's a little there's a little double meaning here right with soul s-o-l the sun and the soul of a situation hmm. the soul has been removed from the government of this, these islands because they're trading slaves, everything's so mechanized. It, everything that, all the value of having a government at all, a structure that, that people can have prosperity or all the value of creating anything is lost in the process of creating it. The soul has gone out of these islands. Yeah. And is there any way that bureaucracy or being soulless actually leads to, because if you think of Gumpus, the whole time that... Uh, Prince Caspian is talking to him. You you can tell Lewis writes it as if he's just kind of giving rote responses until uh, Prince Caspian says, oh yeah, by the way, because you guys haven't paid taxes, now you are, this is going to have to come out of your own pocket. And all of a sudden he's like, what? <laughs> I, that's not going to work. So just he he wakes up when all of a sudden it becomes personal because he's lived in this little selfish bubble, which the bureaucracy and the mechanization of the situation has allowed him to be totally and entirely self-absorbed. That's right. Yeah. The, you can see that there is this byproduct of mechanizing something or making something work more conveniently. It just, it makes it so much easier to be selfish. Yeah. You don't have to worry about anything outside of you. Yeah. And so you won't. So there is value into, in doing things kind of the hard way, taking the scenic route. Yeah. Where you get to actually be filled with the sentimentalities or other people, right? You have to in interact with other people and it might be tedious or who knows, might be difficult. You might have to deal with other people's emotional problems, <laughs> but at least you're involved with humanity. You're involved with other people. And so you can see when, when things become too convenient, yeah, you stop being able to look outward. Another one that stood out to me was the Callermans when they're essentially just asking, like, hey, can we get our money back? Because we just bought all these slaves. <laughs> and, but, but the way that Lewis writes about it, it's like, well, they did it with, uh, I, maybe you can remind me of the wording. but it's Magnanimity, like, I think. Magnanimity. Yeah. And it's like, kind of, well, it wouldn't be right for the whatever. But, but Prince Caspian just sees through it. And he's like, well, you just want your money back. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that. Which is true. And yeah, the, the description of the Callermans is, interesting it's all the same vices it's not like that race of people by their race is, is more vicious it's just it's the same vices with a different skin on them yeah and that's why 
when we go into to Kalorman in another book, we'll see there's the virtues and vices just presenting themselves in a different theme. Yeah. yeah. So neutral. It, they're neutral. Yeah, they're all uh, part of the slave trade here, so they're all villains. You know. Yeah. It's funny to see just like the overly, almost on the nose applicability of just politics being a drag. Yeah. So they reestablish Narnian rule there and they continue and it's in, it's in the next island after they go through the, a real storm which breaks the mast. And this is where Eustace is writing his very subjective, very singular perspective, self-absorbed letters. And you just have to read them because they're so, they're so good. And hopefully you see your own tendencies. It's easy to see these characters and think, I know somebody like that. But I think that doesn't help me. What helps me is when I say, I know that in me. Yeah. And I, there's too much use to me. <laughs> so those letters are just, they're, they're gold. They're just, so, it shows so much self-awareness from Lewis himself that he can understand. And I think he's kind of poking fun at himself. He, he looked with embarrassment at his own diary before his conversion. And I think that's what he's alluding to. And then after his conversion, he didn't write in his diary as much. Not that he, not that writing in your diary is bad, but there's something very self-absorbing about writing in a diary. Yeah. There's a, a just for the, for the record, as someone who's known Alex for a long time, the fact that he's willing to see Eustace in himself is probably one of the reasons why you'll like him, not not like him. So, I'm all the best. There you go. I'm all the best Eustace. <laughs> I'm all the I'm the dragon Eustace. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna get to a line at the end of, at the end of chapter seven that I love probably. <laughs> anyway, so moving on to Eustace becomes a dragon. What stands out to you just about this whole situation about how he comes upon the treasure? It does the, the first line that you get that maybe Eustace is changing a little bit is as he's climbing the mountain to the cave, it says he realized like old Eustace wouldn't have been able to make this climb and just do it. And now he's gotten stronger from this. Yeah, journey despite himself, bit. he's becoming stronger. Yeah. Even how he's trying to avoid work, at least he's doing some work while he's on the boat. <laughs> That's true. He is running away. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes drudgery, if you've got if you want to self like improve yourself at all, maybe just do a hard thing. I think Lewis takes pains in helping us understand the idea of turning into a dragon isn't just every day. It's not like you're going to have to worry about turning into a dragon. But if you've read all the right books, you'll understand when magic's at play, stuff like this is possible. And he always was a dragon. It's just he was hiding it on the inside. Yeah. Right? All the characteristics of, of the mythological dragon. Greedy, jealous, uh, guarding the hoard of, of gold. You can think smog and in uh the hobbit yeah and there's obviously that's not just a offhand illusion they were writing the you know tolkien and lewis part of the same writing club yeah. so i'm sure lewis part of the writing part of the books that the pevensies have read one of them's the hobbit right so th that's why they understand this about dragons yeah and obviously older myth uh mythological and fantasy stories it's like you can be a dragon for so long and try to hide it keep it on the inside eventually it comes out and it his path to redemption starts when he starts when, when at least he's honest about being a dragon <laughs> right yeah because he starts turning into it he turns into a dragon once he comes into a dragon cave and starts having dragonish thoughts about the gold and the greed yeah what about the armband i'm not sure Any thoughts? it does help them find out who he is i'm not yeah. sure if it's just like a little macguffin or a story element that helps them later oh that's the it has the crest of oh, i can't remember who's the who's the narnian lord that 
uh, it starts with an O, I think. Octi- Lord Octesian. But well, I, the what the band does for me is, if it weren't for the band, it does. I can't think of anything else about being a dragon that would be that that is described as being painful for Eustace. Oh, but the yeah. band is the one thing that there's actually pain involved with the entire time he's a dragon until he's not anymore. Oh yeah. And so. then later on, I think when we get to Aslan being with the dragon and him taking off the skin and then Eustace describing it to Edmund, I think pain is something that he brings up multiple times about whether it did or didn't hurt and why it was kind of important that it did sting and it did hurt like a bilio, I believe he said. Yeah, like a bilio, whatever <laughs> like a bilio. that is. <laughs> I don't want to know because yeah. apparently it hurts. He had some good Eustace descriptions of like the skin peeling off, like, like a banana. I was like, really? <laughs> There's a lot of things that take their skin, skin off. As you're like kiss, a snake. Like after an illness. So like, I haven't had that illness. Yeah. Whatever makes your skin peel off. Yeah. Leprosy. Um, anyway, so so just, I, I noticed, I think there had to be an element of pain uh, throughout the entire process. Because um, C.S. Lewis, any anything that I can remember him reading about the repentance process involves... You gotta. You're gonna atone a little bit. You're gonna feel some pain. Yeah, wake, in the waking up, waking up to a change of hearts might need pain. You see that in the Great Divorce. There's a there's a line, a pretty famous quote from C.S. Lewis that says, "Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world." Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes pain is a good indicator that something's wrong. Not every time you feel pain, it's bad. You know, pain yeah. is an important signal that stop change and i think just obviously that's what's happening and I, and I like that you picked that up i didn't see that that the armband allows the because he could be just this finally i have this power he's important yeah go except take that all he out. has this <laughs> pain on his left arm and he pretty pretty soon after becoming a dragon i feel like he he starts seeing himself as the beast that he's been to the people around him yeah he tries he tries to stay as much of a beast inside. But it's so obvious to him now that he then starts, and wanting the company of humans. Yeah, yeah. That he starts seeing that they weren't beasts. He calls them fiends in human form, which is funny because that's what he was. Yeah. So, I mean, it's that projection. And then he starts realizing they weren't like that at all. And then they, he goes back, that finds them, through the armband and some clever tricks with the help of Reepicheep and Lucy, they figure out it actually is Eustace. And then they're, they're really welcoming him, of him as a dragon, you yeah. know? And he's, it says that he's, he was much more tolerable as a dragon than he had ever been as a boy. And he starts really appreciating the kindness yeah. of everybody there. And it makes him happy. It's almost like he, he was the happiest he'd been on the trip because he started to see the kindness in other people. His, perspective starts going outward just as the dragonish character is forced outward yeah and the line that i think of is that that the joy of being liked and even the greater joy of liking other people right it's <laughs> joyful to like other people what's that i think we talked about it before but if you like one thing that's good if you like two things you you're twice as happy yeah yeah <laughs> you know so liking other people is if you feel miserable start liking other people admiration is good for the heart i think yeah that's cool so so here we go aslan finally gets to interact with eustace yeah kind of what stands out to you so about a- aslan through this whole book is like a sunrise right it starts off low and dim it ha- happens at night 
he's only lit up by the moon. And later, as he has more and more appearances until they're like in this super white glow toward the end. But anyway, he, it's at night, Aslan comes to him. He's, he's scared of the lion, not because he's, you know, he's a dragon. He's not that type of scared, but there's, he can sense that the lion has a power to him. He's the real deal, whatever he is. And the lion takes him to a pool, a bubbling well, and tells him to, to and, and I'm not sure what he, even Eustace says. I don't know if he talked to me, but he felt the, the necessity to remove all his like rugged, scraggly scales. And this is something I've noticed with Aslan experiences. It always seems like, one, the character will make some comment like, maybe it was a dream. Right. It always seems like that word's thrown around. And then also, the, whether Aslan speaks or not, there's just this shared understanding, which I think is C.S. Lewis giving a nod to spiritual experiences in general. Just that, um, you know, it's kind of on that border somewhere between just your objective everyday reality and things outside of that. Maybe. Yeah, it, the applicability for a kid or for me, you know, reading this book isn't that when a lion comes, do what it says. Yeah, it's the <laughs> lion's talking to me now, or can talk to my heart without using words right now. Yeah, I know what's right, even when I pretend I don't. Yeah, I know what to do, and I think that that kind of constant availability of personal revelation is something that I take for granted. But even when I'm doing the most nasty things. I know better, even yeah. when I'm being the meanest to people. And I might feel justified in my heart of hearts, I know better. And I think that the lion showing, or, you know, Lewis showing that Eustace even knew what to do and the lion, as if the lion were actually talking to him. So he, he needs to take off his skin. And he realizes, like a snake, a, a dragon's kind of a snaky sort of thing, yeah. right? So maybe I need to shed my skin. So he peels off his skin and it feels good, like removing a scab. You can think of like, okay, if this is a baptism type analogy, you're going to dedicate your life to something greater than yourself. You're going to go through this process of, okay, the old me is gone. Maybe it's a New Year's resolution type mentality that you're in. Yeah. And it's like, oh, setting my goals, it feels great. Yeah. <laughs> it feels good to say, I'm going to start new. And so he's peeling off his skin and it feels good. But he goes to the pool and he's still, still the dragon. Yeah. He has to do it three times, right? And then it's still not enough. It's still not enough. And this is the part where I want to play the clip because the book says it best. So here Eustace has taken his own skin off three times. And then we're going to start. This is in chapter seven. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but... It is fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and 
darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, and I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You can tell that Lewis himself is, has had that sort of experience. Right? He's speaking from experience. When obviously, a lion didn't strip off his skin and throw him into a pool. But he's referring to his own conversion process and putting off what, who he was before and, and the pain of letting, I, I guess, the pain of yielding to something beyond yourself. Because so much, of your, so much of your previous self is the result of being self, just totally dependent on yourself. Right. In another book, um, he even talks, Lewis even talks about clothes as being a way to protect ourselves from each other's greed. And I just think that's interesting. It's clothes are, are this defense from each other. And the idea of him being undressed for the lion is letting down his guard, completely yielding. And it hurts everything. You have to let go of all the things that all the defensiveness, and it really is painful. When you're taking off your skin to yourself, when you're making that goal, when you're saying, I'm going to change, it feels good. Actually yeah. changing that you can't do for yourself is hard and it's painful. Hmm. It reminds me a little bit of the 12-step programs. The first step is recognizing that you need to change. And the second step is recognizing a higher power. That first step is great, but it's just the first, first step. Wanting to change, you know, what recon, recognition is the first step to recovery. But it's just the first step. And then the subsequent steps come as you humble yourself and as you yield. And so true change comes with this yielding. And I just think that that's, it's just such a beautiful fantasy type depiction of what that change of heart seems like. Yeah, I love that. You can tell that the stories that Lewis is writing, there is really a deep, deep meaning to it. Yeah. And he has written books and books about that deeper meaning. But somehow through these stories, it's just like you can, you're steeped in the meaning, you feel it. And I just love this book. It's like a parable. It, it has, it almost, I don't know, strategically, but like, because it lacks the details, it makes it easier to apply. Yeah. Because the instance isn't too specific. I think we've all hopefully felt the pain uh, that comes of trying to submit different aspects of yourself to a truth that's bigger than yourself. Yeah, that's the and, scary realization that you just helped me with. Is this maybe the problem in my life is, and obviously my, <laughs> my life is not full of problems. It's pretty easy. <laughs> but a problem in, in my life is that I'm not feeling enough pain. Yeah, now that's that's a frightening realization. Yeah, but the other thing that I love about this moment is is how Eustace says the only reason why he was able to enjoy it was seeing it come off. That was the one saving grace of the whole moment was there's going to be something so enjoyable about seeing those 
parts of yourself that need to be stripped away come away, that you'll be able to have joy as, even as you're feeling that pain. Yeah. Well, that's it for today for The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, next episode, we will cover chapters 8 through 16. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for following along. As always, uh, we welcome, reach out to us, email. What's our email address? Our email is bookclub at mountainair.media. That's bookclub at M-T-N-A-I-R dot media. Awesome. So it's a book club. So we wanna, want you to continue with us, keep reading with us. Send us your questions, criticisms, corrections, anything you can think of, we want to hear it. Yeah, and if you have the Voice Memo app, you can email a voice memo of your voice with any of these um, additions that you'd like to. Love it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.